Welcome to Bright Now, a podcast about parenting and educating talented kids, sponsored by the Johns Hopkins Center for Talented Youth. I'm your host, Jonathan Plucker, the Julian C. Stanley Endowed Professor of Talent Development at CTY and Johns Hopkins University. Today's episode is different from those in seasons one and two. Starting with this episode, we are creating special between seasons episodes to bide you over while we put together the bigger seasons. We plan to include episodes such as today's, in which we talk to a Hopkins professor doing really cool work that may be of interest to CTY students and alumni. Today's guest is Professor Yulia Frumer, the Bo Jung and Soon Young Kim Assistant Professor of East Asian Science and Technology in the Department of History of Science and Technology at Johns Hopkins University. Yulia, welcome to Bright Now. Thank you so much for having me here. Yulia, your new book is entitled Making Time, Astronomical Time Measurement in Takagawa, Japan. I will admit, when Dean Wendland first recommended your book to me, I thought, really, the history of Japanese clocks? But she very quickly convinced me that this is a very fascinating topic, and I really enjoyed reading this book. What initially led you to this topic? You know, I was um, uh, studying in my undergrads. I was uh, studying Japanese history and um, looking into different um, instruments that were used and and I discovered uh, this really really weird sets of objects uh, that um, apparently they were clocks but they didn't look like clocks at all mm. and uh, the time the kind of time that they measured was not the kind of time that we know today it turns out that the Japanese and before mid of 19 middle 19th century they used hours that change the length with the season. Hmm. So when I first read about uh, life in, in a kind of a system where hours changing in length, they're not stable, that just blew my mind. Like, I, I couldn't believe that people could function normally. Uh, so, so that was the beginning of research. I just, the idea that a society and culture could thrive for decades, if not centuries, with hours that aren't the same length. That just blows my mind. That must have just been fascinating to discover. It is. And, and I think that um, one of the major discoveries is that actually they function just well. <laughs> and it, it worked. It worked fine. Because when we think about this, um, we associate um, our modern time like with trains and, and schedules and planes with the kind of system that we use. The 24 hours, um, 60 minutes, and every hour, 60 seconds. Uh, but actually, the, the things about functioning it's it's not about the kind of time system that they use it's about synchronicity mm. so um, you know the thing is that we never actually synchronized almost never synchronized with with astronomical time we use the words like noon but actually it's not really astronomical noon not only that we not usually in the middle of time zone but it's only four times a year that um, the astronomical noon actually is 24 <laughs> hours exactly yeah. so so you know, like we function when we are not attuned to some kind of system. As long as we all know what time it is, that's fine. Yeah, it's the synchronicity, and it's all being on the same page, so to speak, rather than how long or short things. Absolutely, are. and and yeah. if something happened, and all of us magically our clocks turned thirteen minutes ahead, we wouldn't notice it, right? That right. It, everything would. I mean, not everything, but there are certain things that they continue working. Most but things, but, yeah. but a lot of things would still function. And and that was the case in, in Japan as well, because everybody knew the system and things were synchronized. And interestingly enough, things in Japan, because uh, the hours changed and there was a need to regulate them, things were synchronized much, much better than um, 
for example, in Europe or definitely in America at the same time, uh, because there was a need to regulate and tell people by how much exactly hours change the length mm-hmm. every couple of weeks. So, so synchronicity was something that was really important. And, um, and you know, um, today Tokyo is a really, it's a huge city. But it was a huge city even in the 1700s. In the 1700s, it was more than a million people. Wow. And uh, they had time bells to announce time. But they were placed in such a way that sometimes the sound would overlap. And if you stand in the middle, you can hear bells from three different locations. So you want to hear them kind of synchronized and um, there was a need for the government to come up with a system that that they would have templates they have tables they, they would train these people and to come up with a um, more or less kind of synchronicity that at least would not sound that something is out of place that's a fascinating idea right the whole concept that having sort of flexible time if you will actually forces you to have to be more synchronized than if you had standard time I mean, that's just that's, because you need to pay attention, right? You, 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 everything has to has to really be on. Everyone yeah. again has to be on the same page. Uh, do, do you have a um, you know, a favorite story from the book? You know, the favorite story is actually is not about clocks. And there are a lot of stories about clocks and the, the way that people use them, and and the objects themselves. They're just so fascinating. But my favorite story is a human story. It's, it's, it's actually a kind of tragic story. And um, I, when I read it, I was, I was kind of horrified. And, and, and people who wrote these documents that they read, they were horrified themselves. And that's a story of a head astronomer in early 19th century who was a very, very smart guy and um, who just finished a, a project of mapping of whole of Japan. And he conducted with other people, of course, he conducted an astronomical survey and he created these maps. And then there was um, this German guy who arrived on a Dutch ship. Uh, his name was uh, Franz Philipp von Siebold. And they had a wonderful intellectual exchange. This von Siebold, uh, uh, he um, provided him with instruments. He promised him uh, to bring a chronometer back. He gave him some maps and uh, maps from regions that uh, this um, astronomer, Japanese astronomer could not reach. And the Japanese astronomer gave him maps back except that the Japanese government did not like it. Mm. Um, they, they wouldn't have known about this, but the moment when the German guy was about to leave, they were already in a ship, and they, they were just they were about to, to, to go in the morning, but at night there was a typhoon, and, um, and the ship crashed. So the Japanese government sent a rescue mission, and while they were rescuing, they discovered these maps in the possession <laughs> of, of, of this German guy. And they did not see it as a matter of intellectual exchange. They thought that it's a matter of potential espionage and, and security. And they quickly found that this astronomer, head astronomer, was the one who, who gave out the map. They put him, they imprisoned him. And the description says that he, and after a couple of days, he died out of sudden and grave disease. And we can all imagine what exactly happened to him. <laughs> But the problem is, is that the trial of this astronomer was not over. And for the Japanese bureaucracy, it's very, very important to finish things and to finish the trial and to deliver the verdict. So they decided to preserve his body so that they can deliver the verdict to his dead body. And because he was very, very high status, they, they thought of preserving him in sugar. Uh, but then sugar didn't really work well, so they decided to preserve him in high-quality salt. And then there's, I, I read the accounts of all the descriptions of how it was conducted. And, and first, his whole his body was emptied of all the entrails. 
from all the different holes that he had in the body and then stuffed with soul through all the possible openings. And then all of that was put in a huge barrel, also stuffed with soul, that um, had an opening at the bottom of it so that the rotten juices can get out. And the witnesses, when they described the process and they described what they saw after the the body came out, they said that this poor guy looked like a dried fish, <laughs> and and it, it it was really really horrific because it was it was a, such a wonderful person, and and obviously people who who witnessed that and and wrote this they were horrified. So so I guess that that's something that made impression on me more than more I, than clocks. <laughs> I can see why it would. Uh, uh, relative time, um, espionage, shipwrecks, mummy defendants. Uh, History is fascinating. <laughs> Um, so now, um, as someone who studies creativity, I'm I'm very interested in uh, in several sections of your book that really deal with how the idea, sort of of of, uh, of a standard Western time, really moved from a small group of primarily astronomers, and just gradually over decades, be, sort of became diffused throughout Japanese culture. I I think we see this. Uh, with lots of technology transfer, lots of innovation transfer, right? Where it's a small group who kind of figures it out. But in some cases, it can take decades before people say, oh, hey, wait, maybe maybe there's something to this. Um, I, I'd mentioned to you earlier I, um, that I think uh, it, it's a very similar parallel to me to the geologists who first uh, discovered the um, Ice Age and that uh, they kind of figured it out. It took them a while, but once they figured it out, they couldn't convince any other scientists that they were right. Mm-hmm. And it literally took decades before he figured that out. So, I, I mean, do, do you have any thoughts about that, sort of the the creative process and, and how and how innovation spread throughout a society? Yeah, it's very interesting. Um, that chapter had a lot of people in it. Um, and um, it's very, very easy to focus on people who have big names, especially people who wrote a lot, um, these astronomers. And they were absolutely important. They created a lot of theories. But around them were the people who maintained the infrastructure, the, the, the instrument infrastructure, the instrument makers and clock makers. And these were people that, that were essential for the dissemination of ideas mm. to to broader audience and we not always know their names and in japanese case instrument makers they always took the kind of lineage name so they all named the same you just like oh, it's, yeah. they, they have the same name um but um and we don't know much about their lives, but we know that they did so much because in order to understand what kind of instrument they, the astronomers need, they needed to study astronomy as well, understand the kind of needs. But then they were making instruments and they had blueprints and they continued just making the same instruments and selling them to wider public. And the wider public didn't really understand what to do with this instrument, so they needed to explain. Mm. And they were also the first ones to try to actually decipher what the Western, unmodified Western clocks, how to read Western watches. And it's really interesting because uh, some of them write and they say, you know, Western, Western clocks... It's really, really weird, but I'm going to explain this to you. And um, it's really hard to get into the mind of Westerners. I know that. But, but there is logic. I promise that there is logic. And, and they go in the details and trying to explain to a regular Japanese of how Western clocks work. And it's such a wonderful account that, that something that we take for granted suddenly is being the weird and the bizarre one. The weird and bizarre, Uh, So so I think that in terms of creativity, I think that the people who actually provide the the environment, who make things work, Hmm. um, those people are essential for, for, for the spread of ideas and spread of knowledge. 
within the psychology of uh, creativity, uh, Yulia, we would often call them, I, I would call them, some people would call them gatekeepers, but they're not really gatekeepers. They're more like articulators, the ones who are really explaining the creativity to other people, and that we forget that that that's a really critical role that always has to happen with creativity, right? Like someone has to help spread it. Maybe it's not the creator themselves or the group of creators, but but there always has to be that sort of middle step where people are getting it out there or else how else are people going to know about it? Absolutely. I think that in history of technology, we we now uh, recently especially, we like to call them the maintainers. Maintainers, They maintain the work. They make things work. Yeah, that's great. Um, so to wrap up our conversation today, I, I'm really curious, how did you become interested in your general field of study? And did you always find history of science and tech interesting? Or was there a professor or a book you read or something you saw that got you really interested? Is How, how, how did you get to this point? I think that I took a couple of classes uh, in my uh, probably very first year of college, and mm. I was amazed at, at uh, how many actually philosophical questions the discipline of history of science asks. Like, for example, what's the nature of time? And is our time, is should we take it for granted? Or should we actually think about the time that we use as something weird and things could be different? And and thinking about alternative scenarios or thinking about the kind of contingency of things happening that they did not have to happen necessarily this way, but uh, the way that uh, humans being part of a society both reflect the society but also shape the society that's i I found it fascinating and and i decided to just continue this great yulia thanks so much for being a guest on bright now thank you so much for having me here professor yulia frumer's new book is making time astronomical time measurement in tokugawa japan published by the university of chicago press and available at www.press.uchicago.edu professor frumer is the bo jung and soon young kim assistant professor of east asian science and Technology at Johns Hopkins University, and we were honored to have her be our first special episode guest. That's it for this episode of Bright Now. Tell us what topics you'd like to see covered in future episodes by emailing your suggestions to brightnowpodcast at gmail.com. If you enjoy Bright Now, support us by sharing the podcast with friends on social media, and be sure to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. Bright Now is produced by Jonathan Plucker, Tracy Guerin, and Trisha Schoenbach. Audio production by Iris Starkangelo and the team at Clean Cuts, a 3Cs company. Our score was written by Austin Coughlin from Noise Distillery. Special thanks to CTY's Interim Executive Director, Amy Shelton. Bright Now is underwritten by the Johns Hopkins Center for Talented Youth, a nonprofit dedicated to identifying and developing the talents of academically advanced students worldwide. Find us on the web at cty.jhu.edu and on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.